Welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Chris, and on this episode, we are speaking with our dear friend, Joellen. And this is a topic that I think applies to almost all of us in some way. And no matter what your relationship to the subject, I feel like this conversation will offer us strategies to invite us to deepen our relationships with one another, show up for one another with more care and compassion, which is what we're all about here at Pleasure Mechanics. Joellen, welcome to Speaking of Sex. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Welcome back, I should say. Yes. You are a returning guest <laughs> after your second book has just been published. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Can you just orient us to who you are, your full name, yes. who you are in this field, and how you came to write these books? Sure. My name is Joella Nadi, and I came into this field as a blogger. Uh, my site was called The Redhead Bedhead. It still is called that. It still exists. Um, and I thought I was going to write sexy sex writing with all the sex education. I was going to have you know all the sexy fun, and um, I kind of forgot that I had a history of depression and I think I just decided that was over and that wasn't going to come back and it did and I wrote about it and um, people really responded to that and that led to me starting to write about the intersection of sex and depression and I did this 1100 person survey and I interviewed um, about 175 people and that was all leading up to my first book the monster under the bed, sex, depression, and the conversations we aren't having. Mm-hmm. And that book started out as like, um, I really just wanted something where I could say to people, see, other people are having this experience too. You're not alone. This is common. But the interviews shifted that um, somewhere in the middle. It started being about um, like half of what I just said, but also half of it was about how we navigate the relationships and how we can support each other. And my big belief that depression, you know, we believe it kills our relationships, but I don't think it's the depression. I think it's the resentment that comes out of not knowing how to handle the depression. So that book came out in March of 2020 because I have the best timing ever. Um, So (laughs) I released that and I did uh, some virtual events promoting that. And every time I did one, someone would say, you know, this is really helpful information for anybody who knows someone with depression, even if the relationship isn't sexual or romantic or whatever. And I knew that, you know, our world is super uncomfortable with sex and I knew that no matter how many times people said to others you know your you know cousin has depression pick up this book nobody was going to buy the book with sex on the cover to support you know this not sexual relationship so I actually did some more interviews and I asked some more questions and I expanded on that portion of monster and built it into a new book called in it together Navigating Depression with Partners, Friends, and Family. And that's really all about learning how to like give or receive, depending what side of the equation you're on, support when someone is coping with depression. Mm-hmm. And it just calls upon how complex these relationships can be, because if your partner is depressed, it might be your sexual partner and your co-parent. 
and you know someone's father or mother and sister and brother like we're all in so many relationships and it's a web of relationality and one of the things i love about your book is what you just said that depression doesn't destroy relationships it's our inability to handle it that does and you just provide so many really compassionate not even strategies but just offerings conversation starters to better talk about and show up for one another but let's start with this word depression you say quote depression is a peculiar beast what do you mean by that? And how do people who don't understand depression or think of it just like the big sads? Um, what do we need to know about depression before we keep going with this conversation? Oh, there's so many things. So <laughs> the first thing is, um, and I'm going to touch on this one really quickly, and I'm going to beg the audience to not fixate on it, but just know it in the back of your head. This set of symptoms that we refer to as depression it can be caused by this thing we call, you know, depressive disorder, or, you know, major clinical depression. It can also be caused by um, inflammation or like it can have physical causes. The depression that results is the same, right? So kind of whatever is bringing about the depression, it's depression. We fall into this thing where we think if it's not, if it's not major depressive disorder, then it's different. But like, how you navigate the, the depression as a symptom is going to be the same. That said, depression, we think of it as sadness, but it can be so many things. It can look like anger. It can look like silence. It can look like disconnection. It can look like working harder than usual and, and throwing yourself into more activity. It can look different person to person, episode to episode. And that's really hard for people, even doctors, to grasp, right? I spent a weird amount of time misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder because I had one depressive episode. Uh, my depressive episodes usually look very lethargic and I gain weight and I don't work and I lay on my couch, but I had one where I like worked my ass off and I was constantly going and I was dating constantly and I was doing all this stuff. and. Multiple doctors looked at that and said, oh, well, you seem to have bipolar. But it was just, um, I was trying really hard to convince myself I was not depressed. I was winning. I was beating depression. And so that's how that episode played out. And looking back, if somebody had said to me, like, you don't get support right now because this episode doesn't look like what we think depression should look like, that would have been devastating. Oh, also the thing to remember about depression, if you love someone with it, it is not about you. There's never going to be a thing you did that caused it to happen. And it's never going to be um, a thing you did that ends it. So uh, sometimes people feel like, why is my partner so miserable? Like, shouldn't our great love lift them up out of this? And depression's a beast, man. It, it overrides your great love story and it overrides the beautiful wonderful things happening in your life and um and that can be so hard to take because so much that we like think we know and that we learn in our lives tells us that wonderful things happen we have a child or we fall in love or you know we have professional success and those things make our lives magical but depression doesn't care about those things 
and it finds ways to tell you that like in spite of those things you are still the worst or you're gonna lose those things or you don't deserve those things so it's um it's kind of, you have to think of depression as this separate thing that isn't really impacted by the stuff going on around it. Um, in that way, we kind of want it to be like, we want it to be able to be like cheered up out of, and it's not, there are changes you can make in your life that can help support your mental health. But I don't think I've ever known anyone who was like, I was depressed. And then this one thing happened and now it's great. Mm. Yeah. And that's so important for people who are in relationship with people who struggle with depression for all of us to kind of remember that we are not one another's saviors. Mm-hmm. And that for me, I had to hang up my superhero cape a long time ago because I love so hard. I want to fix people. Yeah. And I realized that I was doing more damage in that attitude than I was helping But also we don't want to be resigned. And I think especially with mental health issues, um, this sense of medical privacy can really get in our way of showing up for one another. Yeah. How do we navigate that in-between place? Um, And what are, you know, privacy is one, but what are some of the other things that kind of prevent us from even starting to care for one another more deeply? Uh, In the book, I talk a lot about the phrase, it's not my place. Um, because I feel like, um, well, somebody in my life uses it a lot. Um, but I feel like it's something that comes up when people are worried about overstepping. Um, and in the last couple of years, we've heard so much, um, if we've learned anything, we've learned that nobody knows what HIPAA does, but they know that they can say it and you'll stop asking medical questions. Um, and I think this has all confused people a lot. And so I am all for, in any situation, doing a little bit extra talking to kind of contextualize. So if you're worried about overstepping, and if you're worried about asking too much, if you're, I, I go into things and say, listen, this might not be my business at all, but, <laughs> and that way you give people the space to say, you know what, I, I don't actually want to talk about that, while also opening the door so they know that if they do want to talk about that, you are someone who is safe and willing to talk about that with them. Um, because I think what we run into a lot more in life is like, it's either we get no help or all the help all the time, whether we want it or not. And mm-hmm. uh, we need the nuance. We need the balance, right? Where it's, you know, there is help here if you want it. And there's a little bit of help or even there's you know, there's help that I will give you and you don't have to tell me anything. You don't have to tell me what's going on. You just tell me what you need and I can, you know, so there's levels of all of it. And we, we need to stop letting the fear of like overstepping keep us from offering that like entry level that will get us helping somebody at all. Yeah. It's something I experienced after my own health crisis that was not depression, but um, I had lost 100 pounds. I was near death. And only after my diagnosis did I hear from so many friends like, oh, I've been worried about you for so long. I just didn't want to say anything. 
And in my mind, that felt like a betrayal. It's like, if you care about me and you witness me in pain, please say something. Um, And this idea of just witnessing one another and acknowledging rather than even leaping to that help or that offer of support, just like I see you and I care about you can be an opening, can be that window that we need to just crack open and allow a little bit of air into the relationship. Um, And you really talk about in the book how this can change relationship to relationship. So if it's a coworker, it'll look really different than if it's your spouse or your child. Um, But all of these forms, like you use the word help, and I want to broaden that to help, care, support, um, solidarity, friendship, right? Like there's a whole range of how we can show up for one another and different people need different things. Yes. Um, so how, what are some like conversation starters or questions um, that are better than the deathly, like, how are you? <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> there's a part of the book where I talk about a friend who, oh, she's so loving and she's so kind. But when I was in a really dark place, she texted me, how are you, every single morning for like a month until I absolutely lost it. Um, Because, man, that's a brutal question, especially when you're not doing great. But, um, so it's tricky. And it's... um, What would you have rather received in that text? So... In the book, chapter 10 of the book is called The Cheat Sheet, and it actually has a list of texts you can send. And some of them were inspired by the things she started sending me after I asked her to please stop sending me that. So Mm. some of them are literally things like, you know, you don't have to answer, but I'm thinking of you. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, um, like sending a picture from a time you spent together and, and remembering that. Uh, my partner and I send each other, um, I regret bringing this up because I'm not clear on how we pronounce this thing, GIFs or GIFs, I'm not sure which, the little animated pictures we all share. Um, we have been sharing one from Perks and Rec back and forth for about a decade because it's <laughs> our shorthand for like when something terrible is happening. And yeah. so those are the things that like kind of make up our language around things being terrible or things or we're struggling or whatever's happening. And I, I think it is so different relationship to relationship. And it is about, you know, cause like if you've got a coworker and you don't know them at all, it might become a thing where you reach out to HR. I don't, you know, I don't know. But if you've got, you know, a best friend of yours and years, it's a thing where you like sit down and have a coffee and you know, your, your entry points are different and your approaches are different. And it's important to know, I think that it's not about getting it perfectly right. It's about trying. Cause I think the loneliest thing is when you feel like, kind of like you said earlier, when you feel like you're very visibly, very obviously something is wrong and nobody is saying or doing anything. Especially because depression tells you you don't matter. Depression tells you you're less valuable than everyone else. So what you're seeing is that play out. You're seeing it play out that your struggle, it is going unnoticed because nobody cares that 
this is happening to you because you do not matter. And like intellectually, you know that that doesn't add up, but it can really be what it feels like when that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of cycle of isolation of, I don't want to be interfering or I don't want to try to like fix someone. So I'm just going to hang back. And then the other person gets more isolated and these relationships can drift to the point where it's then hard to initiate again and show up for one another. Um, But we also need to be reminded, like it's never too late to address this. Um, even if it's something like in your family that's been going on for years and you've never really actively talked about it, talking about it helps. And what it also helps with is getting more specific, right? Because I think we have some preconceptions and ideas of what people need, but we all need different kinds of love and support and we can get more granular with that together. And I think there's, um, there's real value to, um, giving people the help they need rather than the help that makes us feel like we're doing a good job helping. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's really hard for people. Uh, I employed the, the, the framework of love languages in the book because I just think it's a convenient, like shortcut to kind of getting that in place because like for me, for example, when I need support, I need things like, bring me groceries or uh, like, come with me to the post office. Like I need that like acts of servicey like type stuff. And so if you're spending a ton of money to send me gifts, that's not going to help me. Mm. But, you know, somebody else who needs to be like reassured, you know, like we all need different things. And understanding that is going to be helpful. The bizarre but really effective analogy I use in the book is that like if you're broken down on the side of the road and I show up with a homemade lasagna and expect <laughs> you to really appreciate that, you're, you're going to be frustrated because what the hell are you going to do with a lasagna? And your needs haven't been met and now you have to carry lasagna around. And yeah. But that's kind of what we do to people when we say, well, this is the help I'm willing to give you. Here it is. Take it. And then on the opposite is like the idea you talk about in the book of like, we should all be able to ask for what we need when we need it. And if we can't ask for it, we don't deserve that support. Yep. (laughs) And that kind of self-reliance. Yeah. How does that show up with depression? Oh, it's so hard. Um, I guess that whole section of the book is devoted to things that I feel started out positive and veered very, very negative. (laughs) And, um, you know, depression makes everything feel, okay, I shouldn't speak in generalizations. Depression can make everything feel much harder, right? Mm -hmm. Like silly things, like I'll find myself not going to the store because, well, it's after 3 p.m. and the traffic's going to be worse. And then, you know, there's going to be not enough fruit in the side. Like it's, I'll, I'll just make these really complicated stories up. So when you tell me that in order to like get help, I'm going to need to ask for it. Then I'm thinking, well, who can I ask? And, and well, I've already asked that person for something. So now I have to ask that person, but then I can't ask them because they just went through this thing themselves. And it's very complicated. (laughs) And do I believe we should communicate openly and that it's, you know, more effective if we ask people for what we need? Absolutely. Do I also believe that when you see someone struggling in front of you, 
you should not ask for an invitation to help them. I 100% believe that. Um, I believe that there is, you have more of a chance of doing damage by standing by not offering help at all than by putting them in a position where they have to say, you know what, I, it's okay, I've got it, but thank you for offering, right? Because then you've, you've shown you care, you've, you've shown you're there to help, and they can handle it or not handle it. But this thing where we say, you know, the exa I use an example in the book of being out, being out to a, a meal with a friend who loves the ask for what you need thing and uh, getting a call from my bank that my, uh, my information had been stolen and my account had been drained. And so I was frantic. I was making calls. I didn't know how I was going to pay my rent in a couple days. It was like all blowing up. And this friend and my partner were just chit-chatting away. And I finally was like, guys, can, like, can, can we help me out? And they both were like, oh, but you, you didn't ask us. And I was like, for the love of God, I'm sitting here crying next to you. And it just, uh, to me, these are things that feel like um, they should be obvious, but I feel like we've talked ourselves out of them over the last couple of years. We've, like, repeated the same talking points to each other until we've learned to not help each other. I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's something here about acknowledging that any relationship is from both sides. It's a system, and with any struggle, illness, disability, um, it's really important not to create a hierarchy of like, I'm the one helping you and yeah. you're the one in need. Like we're both here, we're both showing up. And there's a real intimacy that can come on the other side of these conversations where we all get to be more human yes. and kind of drop the masks and drop the performances and just be raw with one another. Yeah. It's been uh, the biggest shift that's happened in, because uh, my life has changed dramatically in the last year and a half. I moved across the mm. country, like everything changed. But um, I've only recently realized the big shift that's happened is after a lifetime of, um, I feel like we, we are very similar in age, right? So we went through the 90s. And you remember everybody was so snarky all the time. And it was like everybody was trying to look cool and be mean all the time. And so I spent a lot of time and I'm like a ridiculously oversensitive human being. So I spent a lot of time scrambling to like cover my inadequacies and, and like try and pretend like I didn't just do a silly thing or whatever. And in the last year or so, I realized, you know what? It's so much easier to just like cards on the table. Yes, I did just do a, like a ridiculous silly thing. Or yes, I did like, you know, I used to believe something dumb and now I don't. Or, you know, just owning my humanity and like letting down that that guard it's so much less tiring for me it's incredibly disarming for other people I've realized people drop the snark and the need to like have that thing going when you do that and it just puts us in a position where like now we're on equal footing and ready to show up and relate to each other equally as opposed to having that weird, slightly antagonistic thing going all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, one of the things I really try to communicate with my care is that, like, I love the whole being. And no matter what you're experiencing right now, like, that it's, I don't love you in spite of that. I don't love yeah. you 
hoping that will end. Like, I love all of who you are and we're going to show up in that wholeness together. Um, and that can include some really hard parts of ourselves. Um, and I want to talk, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsor, but I want to talk about what are alternatives to this role of savior or caretaker within our relationships. Let me take a quick moment and thank our sponsor for this episode, dipsystories.com. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, sexy audio stories designed to turn you on and light up your erotic imagination. Dipsy is radically inclusive with stories for straight and queer listeners. 56% of the stories are voice acted by people of color, and you'll find new content every week, inspiring you and lighting you up. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pleasure. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to Dipsy Stories, D-I-P-S-E-A, dipsystories.com slash pleasure. You'll find this link in the show notes along with links to Joellen's books and further resources so you can continue this conversation. Big thanks to Dipsy for sponsoring this episode. So before the break, we were talking about all of the ways we can show up a little bit more fully. But I want to acknowledge that this role of caretaking and the second book is all about all kinds of relationships. Um, but because we're a sex podcast, like when we think about our erotic partners or our um, intimate friendships, the role of caretaker can be an anti-erotic for people. It can shift the erotic balance in our relationship and kind of get too familial for some people to then be aroused. So if we don't think of ourselves as saviors, if we're not going to step into like being caretakers, what are some other kind of dynamics we can cultivate to work with, acknowledge, and you say navigate the depression that is showing up in our relationships? So, and I'm not going to lie to you folks, this one's really hard. And I, um, I have yet to really like nail this one in my relationships. Um, but I feel like the the key, like a, a big key component to it is um, I think a lot of us, especially when something like depression shows up, we kind of hunker in and it becomes the two or however many of us are in our relationship of us like kind of battening down the hatches and not kind of turning outward at all. And I think it becomes important to get support from outside of our relationship because that really lessens that feeling of like it's me taking care of you and that's our dynamic and it becomes more we get to be each other existing and we're figuring out how to ride out what's going on right now and I, I said it like depression's necessarily a temporary thing it it's not and it can come and go and come back and or it can you know exist long term but if you set yourself up to make it so that you have a supportive kind of community around you, you have a much better chance of not building up that resentment that comes in that caretaking role. Uh, the original book for a very long time had a chapter that was actually called 
caretaking resentment and sex appeal and the whole point was about how (laughs) the caretaking dynamic can suck the sex appeal out of our relationships and i think by making sure we kind of have the structure we need um and that includes doctors and therapists and and kind of really it's a lot of structure folks and it's it's hard because that stuff is the easiest to let go of when you're really down in it. And I know that. And, um, yeah, I feel like I say these things and it makes it sound like it's super easy, but when you maintain those structures and you have all that support around you, you still get to see each other as the hot, sexy people you love, as opposed to the people who are like keeping each other alive in this moment. Mm. Yeah. That's a really beautiful reminder. And I think, again, like the privacy thing adjacent is not wanting to talk about one another behind each other's backs. Yeah. And so to reach out to the partner of a friend who you see struggling is something I had to just do recently and kind of ask them, like, do you have eyes on this person? Like, Mm. do you have any information? Like, I've lost touch. Are, Are they okay? Um, But in doing that, I also wrote to the person themselves and said, just so you know, like I'm reaching out to your partner, um, I'm here and kind of clearing ourselves of like the guilt and the fear around showing up more fully. Like so many of us have more care to give, but there's a lot of cultural messages telling us to hold it back. And I want to try to start creating pathways for people to be more fearlessly loving um, and risk those moments of like, oh, you overstepped and be able to repair that if needed. Um, I talk a lot in, in both books, actually, about a thing called ring theory that I love because it, it actually gives you a framework for kind of telling everybody where they get to like where they can help you. Right. So it puts everybody in, let's say I'm the person experiencing depression right now. You know, so I'm at the center and the first ring out from me is my partner. And then the second ring out is my family. And then the third ring out is my friends, whatever. And everybody is so forth and so on, on concentric circles moving out. And the rule is in reference to the struggle with my depression, you know, you send comfort in and you vent outward. So Mm. my partner doesn't vent to me about how hard my depression is. My partner, though, can turn to my family and say, you know, I'm really struggling. And then my family sends comfort into my partner. And so what that does is it actually gives everybody a job and it makes it so it's kind of easy to see who is supporting who and and why and how. Um, It was pointed out to me in a recent interview that somebody um, applied this in their relationships and the people involved thought they were never allowed to complain about anything to the people on Inner Circle. So she she was like, I stopped hearing about the work gossip. And so keep talking to them about other things. But (laughs) the traumatic situation at hand, comfort in, dump out. Mm. Yeah. Comfort in, vent out. I love that. Yeah, Yeah, and you might... um fluctuate in like how close you are over time and to kind of know that and show up for each other anyway. Um, Sometimes it's like you see a social media post. Sometimes it's something in the news that might remind you that a partner is a friend is struggling. 
Um, like I know a lot of my trans friends right now are having a really brutal time. Yeah. And yet you don't want to show up and be like, hey, you're trans. Are you OK? Right. That's not the yeah. point. But it's um, acknowledging our relationships, acknowledging our interconnection um, and just trying to more boldly show up and understand what people need, um, witnessing each other. I want to ask about um, pleasure and eroticism within depression. You do have a whole book on this that we're going to link up. Um, But I want to ask specifically about the idea of responsive desire. Because in the sex field, you know, we think about spontaneous desire and responsive desire. Um, Is responsive desire a useful framework when it comes to depression and how do we work with it without the kind of helper mentality of like, well, if you just went outside, you would feel better. I struggled with this for so long because um, for me, it felt um, almost coercive and almost like a tool we were giving people to pry sex out of their partners who didn't want sex, you know? But what I realized eventually um, is that especially when the, when uh, depression specifically is involved, is that there's different levels of being sexually disinterested, and sometimes it's like, no, I I don't I have want no part of that, and and other times it's like you know what sex could be good, but God I'd have to get up and I'd have to take off my pants and I'd have to put them back on later and uh, and so it's responsive desire kind of for me fits into that time when. Sex could be good, but it it feels kind of difficult. And the test I think about for like um, determining whether you're in the place where it could work or or, or the place where you just don't want it is something I call the sexual skeleton key. Mm. So uh, it's the thing that really does it for you, right? Like if if that doesn't do it for you, nothing's doing right so um the example I use in the book is kind of absurd because it's my personal example which is that if I know there's an erection nearby I'm kind of like woo (laughs) and if that's not my response then I know in that moment I'm like no today is not a day we try it Mm -hmm. um so I but my partner and I had to have a conversation where I was like, this does not mean I want you whipping out erections every time you're interested, just in case it, it gets me going. Um, so I think it's a thing where, like with anything, it requires nuance and conversation. And what's great about this, though, is that when you're having the conversations, your partner stays in the loop. So it's not just that you're rejecting sex, it's that you're talking about it and you're exploring it together and you're saying, you know what, my brain's not there today. And they're getting to see that it's not about them, you're not rejecting them, it's that your brain is relating to sex differently each day, each hour, whatever, and they get to kind of ride that along with you and it leaves less potential for that that sex becoming a hot button issue that makes us angry at each other thing. And that, I, I think it's, and again, I hate to share this story because it makes it sound like, <laughs> do this and it will make your partner have sex. But um, what was eye-opening for me was employing some of these things and having a partner say to me, okay, I understand. Yeah, let's not pursue that. And then like an hour later being like, oh, wait, now I'm into it. And hmm. it was being given the space to not at all be into it if I didn't want to. 
allowed me to kind of find my way back. And, you know, your mileage may vary, folks. That might not happen, but mm. it's such a better place to be in than that, like, you know, walking on eggshells, afraid people are going to get mad, sex is a bad topic place. Yeah. And when we talk about sex and pleasure, right, it's so easy to go all the way to do you want to have sex? Can we do this? And like, how do we open up the whole spectrum of pleasures? I've been really thinking a lot about cozy pleasures, right? Oh, like, yeah. what would feel cozy right now? Yeah. What can I do to help you feel more comfortable even? Um, and those incremental, cozy, comforting pleasures go such a long way in our day to day lives. But sometimes we can overlook providing a moment of cozy as a huge erotic act for one another. Oh, it's true. Mm. Mm. (laughs) And sometimes people need cathartic release, right? And so it's like cozy might feel condescending. Um, And we can only get here with one another, as you said, through conversation. And the book really helps with that because it provides such a rich treasure trove of language that so many of us don't have preloaded on our tongues. Like we need ideas of how to approach this one another. So thank you for gathering so much compassionate language in between. Oh, it was such a joy to do it. It was, yeah, it is something I am very happy to have done. Mm. I am curious how you'll think about this. Um, I've been talking a lot with some of my friends who are trans, some other ones who are autistic or neurodiverse. And this question of when are depressive symptoms uh, an accurate response to the world around us? Um, We often think of it as like an individual mental state, but it's quite social in nature. Um, So how do we kind of pull apart like what is individual um, versus social and kind of give each other more permission to have I think anxiety and depression are both very accurate responses to so much of what's happening right now um, yeah. without kind of signing off on it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and this is something um, I've struggled with myself. Um, I, I didn't get treatment for anxiety for a long time because I kept being like, well, I feel anxious, but also like, look at the world right now. Of course I feel like it seems to make sense. Um, But it can also be incredibly frustrating when you're experiencing like a a mental health crisis and everyone around you is like, yeah, we all feel that way right now because of what the world is like. Um, And I think it's so hard because I don't want to introduce the like mental health trials Olympics where it's like, well, if you're doing this, this is worse. And, you know, Um, but it's kind of like what they say when you're physically injured, like when when you stop being able to take care of yourself it becomes a thing where like you definitely need intervention i i do feel like we all deserve intervention and help before we get to that point though and i don't know you'd think i'd be used to the world being on fire to the degree it is but i'm not Mm -hmm. and um the part of me that is a perpetual optimist keeps thinking, well, when we get out of this, I, I don't know what, yeah, <laughs> when things get back to normal. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I feel like I don't have a good answer here. Yeah. Um, well, it kind of loops back to how we started with kind of no matter where it comes from, yeah. um, you can 
ask for support. You can get treatment, whether that's pharmaceutical or not. Um, you can try different things and see how your body responds. Like you don't need a crisis to receive care. Oh, and here's an important thing, because I think we as humans struggle with this. Acknowledging that someone else is struggling does not like rob you of your struggle, right? So if your friend is looking at the news and feeling devastated and having like depressive reactions to that, and you have had major depressive disorder for three years, you can support your friend and offer them love and, you know, comfort in this time. It doesn't mean, you know, you've given up your right to your depression, right? You don't, you don't need to like enforce that your depression is worse or has been like, there's no prize for worse depression. We're just all trying to get by here. So, you know, show up for each other, love each other, know that it's brutal right now for just about everybody. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Why, you know, <laughs> I think we all need these strategies of care and conversations of how do we care for one another and be in it together. And I love the title of your book because, you know, one of the things I say to all my friends is I'm here with and for you. Right. And that with is really important and it brings us together in all that we're navigating. So thank you for this beautiful book. Are there any closing words that you'd like to share with our listeners? Honestly, um, I'm so excited about this book. I, I keep saying that because, uh, you know, the first one I was so nervous and scared when it came out in the world. But this mm. one I'm just wholeheartedly excited. Um, but I'm going to do a very salesy thing right now, which I don't usually do. But do it. Um, check out the book. Get the book. Um, if you like the book, please go tell Amazon about it please write a review. Uh, that is the most immensely helpful thing you can do for any author in your life. Um, if you don't like it, you can keep that to yourself. That's fine. Um, but writing those reviews is so helpful and um, it's totally free. So please go do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this is one of those books that I'm going to recommend people buy in multiples mm -hmm. because it's one of those books that you have on your bookshelf and you can give away freely. Yeah. Um, and that act of giving someone a book might start a conversation that preserves a relationship that is very dear to you. Mm -hmm. um, and you never know the impact of sharing these conversations. So thank you for being here with us today. Thank Folks, you. go buy the book in packs of three or five or more <laughs> and be in touch with us about what this conversation brought up for you. Because um, we're talking about depression today, but really we're talking about care and how we can all show up for one another more fully as we navigate all that life throws at us. Thank you, Joellen, for being with us. And Thank you. We'll see you all next time. Oh, and we will put your links in the show notes. Okay. Redhead Bedhead is still an amazing sex blog. <laughs> You still have the map of sex stores? I do. Yes. It's um and sadly we've lost a bunch of them, but mm. but it's still there and you can still yeah. It's very cute. <laughs> yeah, we'll point to some of your, your resources that I direct people to all the time and to your books. And thank you for being a resource in this world for so many. Oh, thank you. And happy birthday. Oh yes, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Bye. We'll be with you next week with another episode of Speaking of Sex, and you'll find all of our resources at pleasuremechanics.com. Cheers. <laughs>